All right, everybody, thank you for your attention with all of that. If you have your copy of the Word of God, please open it with me now to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 is the final chapter in this second section of the book of Exodus. And as you know, there have been many, many dramatic chapters in Exodus thus far. But, but I believe that it could be argued that Exodus 24 is the most dramatic chapter in all of Exodus. Church, this chapter is one of the most dramatic, it's one of the most powerful, it's one of the most encouraging and strength-giving chapters in the entire Bible. And so, if your life feels shaky this morning, if you are lacking strength and stability in your soul, if you need encouragement today, this chapter is for you. And so let's lean into God's word together as a church family. Let's read the entire chapter together. It says this, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book, the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. 
And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his holy word this morning. Friends, I say that this is one of the most dramatic chapters in our Bibles because what we have here is an official covenant ceremony. Some scholars would even say that it is a divine wedding ceremony. In Exodus chapter 24, God leads the man Moses to lead the people of Israel into what is an official ceremony through which Yahweh, God himself, and Israel are joined together in an official covenant relationship. Now, something like this has happened once before in God's word, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, but that was between God and the one man named Abraham as a representative of God's people. But now, here, God covenants himself in an official way to the whole people of God. And it's a really big deal. I mean, weddings are a big deal, aren't they? What a celebration they can be or at least they they should be. Weddings are an opportunity for us to commemorate and to celebrate the binding of one man and one woman in marriage. And because God's design for marriage is that it be for life, it is a really significant event. I have officiated somewhere between 60 and 70 weddings over the last 20 years, and every single one of them has been incredibly meaningful. I hope to the people participating as well. Now, the wedding ceremony... There is form, there's a ceremony, there's words that are spoken and agreed to, there are, there are symbols of covenant love with the rings that are exchanged, there, there are witnesses who observe the ceremony. And, and all of these things serve to provide a, a weight and a seriousness and a joy to what is happening in, in a way that hopefully serves as a source of strength and encouragement later on in life when life gets difficult in marriage. Because guess what? Marriage is not always easy. A covenant relationship for life is hard with many struggles along the way, but this is why a ceremony with vows and words of agreement is so important because when life gets hard, we should be able to look back and see the commitment that was made on that special day together. Well, friends, that is in many ways what we have right here in Exodus 24. We have a powerful ceremony before us, like a, a wedding ceremony even. It is official. It, is, it has different parties participating. There, there is an officiant of the ceremony. There are words being spoken. There is agreement being made. There are symbols that are given, all to establish this covenant relationship and to later strengthen that relationship when the going gets hard. Brother or sister, how strong or how weak do you feel right now? How healthy do you feel like you are in the Lord? Do you feel like you're in a place of strength and stability or in a place of weakness and vulnerability? In a room this size, I would imagine that a lot of us, perhaps the majority of us, would say that we are in a place of weakness people who feel that our relationship with God is not what it should be. Maybe we have been unfaithful to God. Maybe our sinfulness has been getting the better of us and we've made some really big mistakes and it has left us distant from God. Or maybe we're dealing with so many difficulties and pains and struggles and hardships that it feels like God has abandoned us. 
Like we've kept up our side of the covenant relationship, but where is God in all of it? Friend, wherever you are, no matter how strong or weak you feel, your soul, my soul needs the truth of this text today. What we see here in Exodus 24, it it should give each one of us great strength and, and stability as we go into this week and as we go into the seasons that remain ahead of us. The main idea for our sermon today is this. Great strength is found in our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And church family, I hope that those words are already very familiar to you because over the last five years together, we have seen many times in God's word that he is indeed a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. We should have those words tattooed on our foreheads. They are so important. He is covenant-making and covenant-keeping. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And we are gonna see that very clearly in this covenant ceremony together. And we're going to study it now by looking at four points. Point number one, the parties involved. Point number two, the words spoken. Point number three, the blood sprinkled. And point number four, the meal shared. Okay, that's where we're headed. Let's go ahead and begin with the first point, the parties involved. Uh, This chapter is certainly very dramatic. I mean, the fact that Moses is throwing blood on people is a fairly significant thing. The fact that God invites these people up on the mountain to share a meal with him, that feels fairly dramatic. But I do not think that those are the most dramatic things in this text. Do you know what is even more dramatic than those things? What is even more dramatic is that the one true and living God, the God who shakes mountains and who is unapproachable in his glory and in his majesty and in his goodness and grace. This God is initiating a covenant relationship, a marriage relationship between himself and the people of Israel. We see what is most dramatic here in this chapter when we stop and consider who the parties are that are involved. The one True and living God, the God of creation who spoke galaxies into existence, the self-existent one who called himself the great I am in Exodus chapter 3. This self-existent one is entering into a covenant relationship with his people. And that, that would be a dramatic thing if these people were good and righteous and easy to be around. But they're not. It's even more dramatic because of who Israel is. We know this, they're not good people. Church, we're not good people. We, like Israel, are sinful. Like Israel, we are doubtful people. We we question God's goodness. We get angry when he doesn't provide for us in the exact way that we want. We grumble, we complain. When When it comes to following the Ten Commandments, which he's just given a few chapters before, all of us have broken all of them repeatedly. We are a sinful people. And we can see it even in the text today. We we see how dramatic the uniting of these two parties are in verse two or verse one when it says, stand afar off. And then verse two when God says, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. All of that is to, to show us that we are sinful and we cannot approach the living and holy God however we want to. Why? Because of our sinfulness. 
and because of his holiness, he would consume us in our sin. Back in chapter 19, verse 12, God specifically said to Moses, when they first get to the Mount Sinai, he says, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Why did God tell Moses to put those parameters up? Well, because he said that he, in his, in his holiness, would break out against them in their sinfulness. Their, their sinfulness could not touch the holiness of God. It can't even touch the mountain where his holiness resides. Friends, the, these are the parties involved in this covenant ceremony. The self-existent creator God, the the holy one and, and the people who he's made in his image but who have rebelled against him and who have sinned in, in countless ways before him. The, the, the parties involved in this ceremony are a holy judge and people who deserve his judgment. The people of Israel should be dust by this point. Because of their sin and unbelief, they should be forsaken in the wilderness, but instead they are a bride standing at the altar of an extraordinary wedding ceremony. They are about to be beautifully and powerfully joined to God forever. This moment is so dramatic when you think about the parties involved. When I think about it, I can't help but think about my own wedding in some way. Uh, First of all, because if you see Ashley and I together, you will immediately ask, how did that dude get that girl? It makes no sense to me either. Even in my best times, I I, I married way out of my league. But listen, that makes even more sense when you consider the circumstances of my wedding day. Many of you know that I was diagnosed with severe cancer two weeks before my wedding day. And so we came into our wedding day very weak. I am a mess. I have tumors in my body. I am sweating profusely. I am high on a whole lot of drugs that the doctor gave me. I am weak. I'm tired. I do not look well. I look pale and sickly. And then there's my wife, radiant in her beauty. I cannot imagine the thoughts the people were having. Like, like how do these two go together in this moment? Well, that is what we have in this text, only times a bazillion. You really cannot get more dramatic than this. And church family, we we should feel deep inside of us how dramatic this is because we all know it to be true. If we're honest, we, we know how sinful we are. We know how many mistakes we've made. We know that we have not obeyed God like we should. Even this morning, you and I have sinned enough before God's holiness to deserve his eternal wrath And I know know we don't like to talk about sin very much today. I know that churches avoid talking about sin, but it's so important for us as Christians to never move beyond the drama of God's grace and mercy towards us. Listen, he did not need to rescue you. He did not need to rescue me. He did not need to restore that relationship. He was perfectly happy in himself. He would have been perfectly just to let us perish in the wilderness of our sin. But church, he's rescued us. He's rescued us. Christian, look at your sin this morning. And I don't mean to be sin-focused. I don't mean to be needlessly condemning. I only want to do what God's word invites us to do. Look at your sin. Consider your unworthiness. Consider your cosmic treason before the Lord and how you deserve his wrath, but how according to Romans chapter 5, even while you were still his enemies, Christ Jesus died for you. That is extraordinary. 
When we consider the parties involved in Exodus 24, when we consider who they are, and when we consider the parties of the gospel, we should marvel. Christian, there is nothing more dramatic than a holy and just God coming into this world to die for weak and sinful people and committing himself to them in his love and grace. There's nothing more dramatic than that. Never grow familiar with this news. Brings us to our second point, point number two, which is the the words spoken. So in verses one to two, we see the parties involved. God says to Moses in verse one, come up to the Lord. He's, He's initiating this ceremony through Moses, but we see the the form and some of the content of the ceremony when we begin to look at verses 3 to 8, and it actually seems a little bit redundant, doesn't it? Because verse 3, Moses, it says that Moses told the words of the Lord to the people, and they agreed to do it, and then there's the verses about building the altar and sacrificing all the animals and the blood, and then in verse 7, it repeats Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Why the repetition of the reading of the law? Well, the first is the summary of everything that preceded it, chapters 20 to 23, the Ten Commandments and the book of the covenant. Moses summarizes all of that and reads it to the people. It's almost like a marriage proposal. You need to know who you are about to covenant yourself to. But they accept the proposal. They say, yes, we will do these things. But then there's a distinction, right? It's the next day, it says that Moses gets up and prepares the altar for the ceremony. He's kind of like a wedding coordinator, preparing all that needs to be done for the big ceremony. And, And then, during the covenant ceremony, is when the book of the covenant is read again, and people officially agree to it. That, that's like the marriage vows in the ceremony. But listen, what I want to notice here together is how important the words are. The words that Moses reads, which we can assume begins in chapter 20, verse 1, with the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of those words and all the words that follow through the book of the covenant, they are at the very heart of God's covenant with his people. These words, which which are initiated by God, not by us. They didn't start this covenant process. These words which begin with the free and unmerited grace of their deliverance from Egypt, they're at the very center of the covenant relationship. Listen, Christianity is based on words. Now that might seem like a simplistic thing to say, but it's true and it's actually really important. If you are a Christian, Your hope, your confidence, your joy is based on God's words. And that's so important because the world that we live in wants our hope and our joy and our confidence to be based on our feelings. Do you feel good in the Lord today? Do you feel spiritually stable today? Do you feel like God loves you? Does that worship song move you in the way that you want to be moved? Do you you feel good emotions in your heart? Listen, Feelings are not bad. Emotions are not bad. God gave them to us. They are even part of our relationship to him. But listen, your feelings are unreliable. But do you know what is super reliable? It is the word of God. 
God's word is at the center of our covenant relationship with him. Think about a wedding ceremony again. Weddings are a big deal. Danny and D, uh, uh, Maddie and DB's, uh, Daniel Bannis, I'm sorry. I get, uh, wedding was beautiful last week. All the, from beginning to end, it was so perfect. A wedding ceremony has many different parts to it. The venue, the, the wedding party, the music, the guests, the party and dancing afterwards, all of it is good. But not all of it is important. Do you know what the biggest part about a wedding is? I often say this during the rehearsal the night before. I often say, listen, uh, I'm all for singing at weddings. Great. I'm all for the processional looking beautiful. Great. I'm all for the dance party at the end. Great. I'm not. Ashley is. (laughs) I'm all for all of it. But listen, you could take all of it away, but you must not take away the wedding vows. None of that other stuff matters, but the wedding vows, the, the words that are spoken to, other, to each other before God and before those witnesses are what the wedding ceremony is all about because that's what a covenant relationship is all about. It's about saying, I am, I am vowing myself to you. I am committing myself to you for life. I, I will not leave you. I will not change my mind about you. That's what a wedding should be all about, and that's what we have here. The word of God is at the very center of what is happening. We see it read aloud twice in this one chapter. The the word of God, which includes the salvation that had already been given to them. It's It's the foundation of the covenant, and it's what Israel agrees to. And they can do so because God has proven himself trustworthy. And friends, there is a reason why when Jesus comes to this earth in human form, that John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us because Jesus is the embodiment of God's covenant words found in Exodus chapter 24. He's the embodiment of all God says for his people. Christians, God's, God's word is everything to us. Base your life on this book. Live out of this book. Let it be your strength. Do do not listen to sports radio. Do not listen to NPR. Do not listen to Fox News. Do not listen to CNN more than you listen to this book. It's the foundation for our relationship with God. It's our reminder of who he is. It's a reminder to us of what he's done. We must not turn away from this glorious book and the words of our faithful God. Brings us to point number three, which is the blood sprinkled. So the scene is already crazy dramatic with everything that's going on. And then Moses starts throwing blood all over the place. (laughs) Look at verses 6 and 8. It says that Moses took half of the blood from the sacrifices and threw it on the altar. And then verse 8 says that Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What is going on? This is intense. I imagine as you... As you read that and and think about this as an ancient ceremony, it it might feel strangely archaic and barbaric to you. Like what kind of culture, what kind of cult ritual is this? Why would God throw blood over people? Why, what should we think of this? Should we cringe at the very thought of this? It kind of feels disgusting and, and, and messy to us. But this is not the first time that we have seen blood in Exodus nor in the story of redemption up until now. And so it would not have been a surprise to the people of Israel. No, sacrifice and bloody sacrifice have been a part of God's story of redemption ever since the very beginning. 
Ever since the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin and and God needed to kill those animals in order to cover their nakedness and their shame with the skins of those animals. Ever since Genesis chapter 15 when God told Abraham, kill these animals, cut them in half, walk through them as a picture of the covenant that I am making with you. Bloody sacrifice is not new. Now it's a little more intense in this passage because it's being thrown on the people. That feels like a lot. But elsewhere though it says that it was sprinkled on the people. And so what likely happens here is that, is that Moses, Moses takes a hyssop branch, dips it in water and blood, and, and sprinkles the people. And it's actually probably not even all the people. It's not like they're immersed in blood. It's, it's probably just the, the representatives of each tribe being sprinkled with this blood in some way. That's what it says in the book of Hebrews anyways. But no matter what it is, it would not have been new to the people of Israel. The the blood would not have been a surprise at this point because biblically speaking and and throughout God's relationship with his people thus far, blood has had a central part to play in his story of redemption. Why? Because God's word is abundantly clear to you, friend, that the wages of your sin is death. Your sinful rebellion against God deserves his judgment and wrath. We deserve to die. Our blood deserves to be spilt. And so blood being spilt in moments like this is indicative of God's word and plan. In order for God to be in relationship with a sinful and rebellious people like us, blood needs to be spilt. Hebrews chapter 9, while talking about these very things from Mount Sinai, the author of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the Israelites would have known this, even in a recent way, because just back in Exodus chapter 12 at the first Passover, the only way for their firstborn sons not to be killed by the judgment of God was for them, each family, to sacrifice a lamb in that son's place and to take the blood and to spread it on the doorpost of the home. And so here as well, we have a demonstration of blood being a sign of atonement, a sign of purification as well, but primarily that of atonement, that it it was needed, blood needed to be spilt for sinful people to be in relationship to a holy God. And so it's completely appropriate that in this moment of ratifying the covenant between Yahweh and the nation of Israel, which would be impossible without atonement, it is appropriate there, there be blood even thrown upon their people. Friends, there must be blood. Why? To symbolize how God intends to ultimately atone for our sins. As a just God, he, he can't just ignore our rebellion. He must punish it. Blood must be spilt And so this is a sign of God's resolve, his commitment, his covenant to punish our sin in order to be, to remove the barrier so that a relationship might exist between him and his people. Again, this this moment symbolizes God's heart to send a sacrifice to be killed in our place in order to unite us back to himself forever. This, in this moment, it is, it is a sign of God's substitutionary atoning grace. It's being put on display and it establishes relationship with God in an imperfect way here. But oh, Christian, as we read this, we should begin to think about the ultimate sacrifice The glorious sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, 
The, the, the blood was thrown upon the people here in Exodus 24, but it's just a faint picture, a faint shadow of what would happen at a later time when a far greater blood would flow from Jesus as he died on, our, on that cross in our place in order to pay the penalty that we deserved. And so he did it so that we might forever be in relationship with him and with his father. If you are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, you are forgiven. Your sins are washed away. This isn't magic water. This doesn't save Jared or Rob. It's the blood of Jesus. And he gives us that blood so that we might be in relationship with him. And that brings us to our fourth point. Point number four, the meal shared. What is all of this ceremony about? What's all the form of Exodus 24 really for? Is all of it just a legal action that needs to be taken? Is it because of his justice and his desire to do things right? God says, I, I need to marry these people. We might as well make it official. When, when, when a young couple gets married, uh, the big moment is not going to the courthouse to get the license, Right? Most engaged couples don't have a countdown clock to the day they go and pay for that license at the courthouse. No, no, that just doesn't happen. The, the legality is important. Steps need to be taken to establish the covenant of marriage. But what is it really about? Where does the joy come from? It comes from the relationship, right? And that's exactly what we see in this text. Our, our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God is all about relationship. Yeah, yes, the ceremony is important. Yes, it is hugely significant that blood is involved and that words be spoken and that people accept the covenant and pledge to obey their, their covenant vows. That's important. But look at the relationship that follows. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, Then Moses... Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. This is a holy and happy moment. It's amazing to read. It says, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. God's not destroying them despite them being sinners coming into his presence. Friends, that's grace and mercy on display. And then it says, they beheld God and ate and drank. That's incredible. This is so powerful and so dramatic. Moses and these leaders, they, they see God. Now, now, all that it describes is that they, were, they saw what was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire, like the, the very heaven for clearness. So it seems like they didn't really see God. It was more likely that they saw the effects of God on the mountain. And that's very likely because Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, God says directly to Moses, man shall not see me and live. And so it's very likely that here in 24 that Moses and the leaders only see the effect of God upon the mountain or maybe the underside of his feet. But this is still amazing. God invites them into his presence and he does not lay his hand of judgment upon them and it actually says that they eat a meal in his presence. A marriage deserves a feast, doesn't it? 
A new covenant relationship deserves a celebration. It deserves to be commemorated, and it deserves to be commemorated with relationship. And biblically speaking, there's few better ways to do that than with sharing a meal. There is so much grace and so much mercy and so much of the heart of God on display right here for us to enjoy. There's so much relationship. What this shows us is that God desires relationship with you today. His whole purpose in this world is to have a relationship with you, friend. He wants you in his world. The the whole legal system, the whole sacrificial system, all of the blood of the Old Testament, it's all preparatory. It's a preparatory plan to redeem and renew the relationship that he had with his people before sin came into this world. He's not just about legal action. He's about relationship. And he's about relationship with you. He wants to eat and drink with you. He wants to fellowship with you. Stop holding back. Stop, don't wait any longer. He wants you to come. Don't feel like your sin and your mistakes and your shameful things that you've done should hold you back. Jesus came to this earth and it says that he ate and he drank with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He had fellowship with the unclean and the unlovely. Now the religious elite, the Pharisees, oh, who, who only care about legality and who care nothing about relationship, they said that he was a fool and very wrong to eat and drink with sinners like that. But Jesus, the God of the mountain in the flesh, the word of God incarnate, Jesus came and said, it's not the well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I want to share a meal with them. He is all about dwelling with those who are sinners, but who have experienced his forgiving grace. And we're going to see this even more in the rest of Exodus. If you look very quickly at verses 12 to 18, it says that God invites Moses even farther up into the mountain. And it says, such an amazing verse, that his glory dwelt on the mountain. It's in verse 16. And then it says that Moses lived on the mountain with him in that glory for 40 days and 40 nights. Wow. And during that time, as we will see, God gives instruction on how to construct the tabernacle, which will be the tent, the the home for where God's presence and glory will reside. The place where his glory will rest in the very center of God's people. Church, the meal that is shared here, it is indicative of God's heart for us. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He loves relationship with his people. He loves to dwell with forgiven sinners. He loves to fellowship with us and to have intimacy with us. And this should strengthen you today. This should give you joy like nothing else today. This should bolster you in every circumstance of life today. Can can you imagine what the Israelites and the leaders of Israel must have been thinking in this moment? They must have been so astonished, so amazed that this God would love them in such a bold and serious and and permanent way. That he would want a relationship with them that that bad, that he would want to covenant with them. And, And this moment, which would inevitably become a moment that they would look back on, And and they would find strength and hope in it because guess what? As as quick as they are to say, these are the words of the Lord, we will do what he says. We will obey. They're very quick to say that. Guess what? They're not going to. Why? Because they're sinners just like you and me. 
But how often they must have looked back at this moment and seen the covenantal love of their God to hold them and to keep them from that day forward. Friends, how much strength must they have found in the days and years to come when they were attacked and oppressed to consider that they had a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who had joined himself to them in an official way. What a moment to look back on. What hope could be found in the days to come. But Redeemer family, do you know what? Do you know this morning that we as the church of Christ on this side of the cross, we have something far better to look back on. In our weakness, And in your instability today, in your sinfulness, as great as it may be, we have something far greater to look back on to find strength and hope and peace. What Israel had to look back on was quite dramatic and quite amazing, but what we have to look back on is even more so. The the, the book of Hebrews talks a lot about these very moments in Exodus. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews says this about this very moment. He says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. The writer of Hebrews is talking about this very moment in Exodus 24. But then, but then the writer of Hebrews says, That as powerful as that moment was for them, it was only a faint shadow of a far greater reality. And so he says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He says, as great as Exodus 24 was, as much as we should celebrate, it was nothing compared to what Jesus has done for you, Christian. His blood, Jesus' blood, has spoken a better word than all the blood of the Old Testament. His blood has fully reconciled us back to the Father, and we share fellowship with him for eternity. And so we have this to look back on, amen? We have the gospel to look back on, amen. And What effect this should have on us. Look back on your covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Are you jobless? Are you in a hard part of your marriage? Are you struggling through the first days of school? Have you experienced a diagnosis that you want nothing to do with? Look back on your covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He will not forsake you. And The writer of Hebrews believes this so much that he goes back to the idea of Mount Sinai later in the book at the very end. In Hebrews chapter 12, when trying to to speak truth to his audience and, and bolster them for the difficulties of life, this is what he says to them. He says, for you, Christian, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear he's describing Sinai it's a big deal 
But he says, you, Christian, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then... It says in verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, church, listen to this. It indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made, your circumstances, your surroundings, your pain, your sorrow. It indicates the removal of these things in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Would you stand with me this morning, please? Friends, the work of our Jesus, it has been finished. It has been accomplished for you. His work, his blood, it has fulfilled God's covenant for his people. And so we no longer live as Christians in a kingdom that is shaken. We no longer live in weakness. We have received the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are citizens of a new kingdom. And it is a kingdom of strength, of hope, of joy, and of endurance through trial and of joyful obedience before a faithful God. It is a kingdom that will be described as a marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of our sin and all of our mistakes and all of our pain and all of our weakness and all of our sorrows will be no more and we will be fully united to our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so let's marvel, let's worship, let us offer to him acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's worship him now.